giving a candle to Maxine for 43 years. stayed at 
in any kind of a wait more than 20 minutes because I yo-yoed all the time. I went to all the diet doctors, took all the pills and shots. In my time, it was called fat farms. You know, it's spas. I did it all. I did it all, and it all worked because I am a good dieter, but I couldn't keep it off. Never could keep it off. And people say to me, look, I've lost 100 pounds, and I say, that's great. See me in five years. Because that's the, the easy part is that losing it. Because there's a lot of motive, was a lot of motivation for me to lose weight. It was always to get into that size, whatever it was, to go to the bar mitzvah or the wedding or whatever. And so for me, that was always a motivation. But once I got there, I had the crazy idea that once I got to my normal weight, that I could go back to eating anything I want and still stay at that weight. Isn't that the great compulsive overages dream? <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't work. And I didn't know it didn't work. It took me 30 years to finally find out that it didn't work. Um, and I, try, I don't want to bore you with all the things I tried because you've, I've tried all the things you've tried over mine were a little less expensive and less technical. <laughs> but it's the truth. I didn't have to do all these other, other fancy schmancy things that cost a lot more money. It's all the same stuff. If you do it, it works. If you stop doing it, it doesn't work. And I never knew that how I thought and felt had anything to do with how my body looked. And so I went through life not feeling. I only had two feelings, good and bad. I didn't know anything in between. Um, I was a people pleaser. I was a, a codependent. Uh, I would do anything for you but didn't know how to do a thing for myself. I didn't know how to take care of me. You were always more important than I was because my mother was always more important than I was. And so I grew up that way. And so not until I came into these rooms in um, September of 1961 and this lady sitting in the front row was there, God bless her, because she's, she's responsible for my recovery. Because without Roseanne and our other co-founder, I wouldn't have found this way of life. And I just, I just got here to, to, like this gentleman said earlier, I just came here to get thin. I didn't come here to get spiritual. I didn't come here to get emotionally balanced. I just came here to lose those, those last 50, 60 pounds I had to lose. So for me, when I heard the word compulsive overeater, there was such a sigh of relief for me because it was the first time in my life I had ever heard a name for what was wrong with me. I didn't know why I couldn't eat like other people. I had a very, I shouldn't say dear friend. She was an acquaintance. I never had friends, by the way. <clears throat> when my husband and I got married, I had no one to stand up for me because I had no friends. My major thing was I never met a person I liked because it ended up that they always were better than I was in some way, and I ended up resenting them. <clears throat> so I I didn't have any friends. Huh, some some. Dude, that was. So for me, um, I lost my train of thought. That's what happens when you get old. Anyhow, <laughs> Anyhow uh, for me, uh, coming to these rooms was really uh, eye-opener. I never heard the word compulsive overeater. I never heard that there was a component between eating and emotions. I never knew that. And so when I came into these rooms, <clears throat> we, didn't have the, we didn't have a word for abstinence that we do today. We just kind of dieted. And for the first couple of years, that's what I did. And I did it this way. I, I dieted Monday through Friday and bits on Saturday and Sunday. 
And that was my old way of eating. And because I could take off that weight during the five days of the week and then put it back on over the weekend. But pretty soon after a couple of years, that didn't work anymore. And, and I did try to work the steps. Roseanne had done some pretty good work with the steps, kind of took God out of it put a few other little things in it. But it would, it, that was fine with me because I really didn't have a higher power. And so for me, the first couple of years, I took the steps what I call cafeteria style. You know, first step, part of step one, last part of step 12, a little bit in between. And that's about how my, my results were in this program. I had kind of, you know, half and half results. I didn't have any emotional, spiritual recovery. I did have physical recovery. And I didn't have a sponsor at that time. But in 1964, uh, when the my way of dieting at that time wasn't working because I couldn't take off the three or four pounds I put on on the weekend to take them off during the week anymore, I found a sponsor who was also an AA, and she said to me, if you want what she called permanent sobriety, we would call it abstinence here, you have to work these steps 1 through 12. Because without the steps, OA is just a cheap diet club. And that's what it is. That's, that's what all these other things are. There's, there's a thousand things out there to lose weight, but when we, and they all work, but they don't have this component. And the more they're doing all kinds of scientific studies now, they're finding out that, there is, that obesity is a very complex disease. Not so simple. Just, you know, just eat less and exercise more. That's not the only component there is. So for me, getting that sponsor, she said, I want you to go down to this alcoholic hotel at Third and Alvarado called the Palms and learn how to work the steps. Because she said, they will teach you how to work the steps. Not that she would teach me. And the, the man who uh, was running those meetings was called Bob Brack, who is now since deceased. And he wrote a book called Apor which stood for Applied Principles of Alcoholic Recovery. And he wrote that book because he, he believed that real alcoholics, that the 12 steps weren't tough enough for real alcoholics. So he wrote a book that he felt was tougher and more to the point and was really better for recovery. And so uh, we went and he would lecture and we would read the books and we would do the exercises. And it was very interesting about that meeting. In that meeting, you could not speak unless you had done your fourth and fifth step. What a, what a motivation for a person like me who likes to, likes to talk. So um, I started to go through the steps, and I had to admit that I was really powerless over food because I really had never made that admission. I thought I was powerless until I got to my normal weight. Then I was no longer powerless. What a joke that is. And so for me, I had to really admit that my life was unmanageable because it was. It looked fine. But it was really screwed up underneath. The, married, the man I'm married today was not my first marriage. I was married once before. Uh, and that didn't last because I married another compulsive over a year. And he was a nice guy and he loved me. And I thought that was, you know, all guys were alike. And so he was the next best thing to nothing. So I married him. You know, and he was, and I didn't know. And the things I didn't like, I thought I could change. Right? Wrong. So that lasted a couple of years, and I had made up my mind that marriage wasn't for me, and a year later or two years later, I was married again. So you know what kind of a decision maker I am. So um, we got married, and I always say to him, it's a miracle that we stayed married the first five years we were married because I didn't have the program then. And um, he, he would see this ritual. We were supposed to go out, and, we were, and I was supposed to wear the dress I thought I could wear. And I tried on the dress, and lo and behold, it was too tight, so it went on the bed. 
And the next five or ten minutes, there was more clothes on the bed. And 20 minutes later, I had nothing to wear because nothing fit except that old, stretchy black dress in the corner of the closet that fit all the time. And I was in a great mood. (laughs) You know what a time we had that meeting that night. And so that's what happened. And he didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'd get angry at him about something. He'd say, what's wrong? And I'd say, nothing. (laughs) And uh, that would go on for a while. And I would do what my mother did. I would give him the silent treatment. I wouldn't talk to him about it. Because I I never was honest with how I felt. And about maybe three or four or five days later, or maybe even a week later, things would have um, thawed out. And um, he would say, what was that all about? And, you know, to tell you the truth, I couldn't remember because it was such a big deal. And so that's how, that's how I ran my life. My life was like that. And so my life was unmanageable. My life was terribly unmanageable. And so I did admit that I was powerless over food and that my life was unmanageable. And when it came to the second step, I didn't have a higher power. But my sponsor said to me, you really don't have to have a higher power. Do you believe that I have faith in God? And I said, yes. And I've recovered and I'm sober and abstinent. And I said, yes. She said, then use me. Use me as your higher power to start with. And so I did that. What she told me to do, I did. She said, when all else fails, follow directions. And she gave me directions. She did not give me suggestions. And looking back at my, that first sponsor, she was very much like my mother. Very perfectionistic, very dictatorial, do this or, you know, get off the pot. But I was scared because I really wanted to recover. And so I did that. I said, okay, what you say I do, if I have to go, you know, and go to those meetings every week, I'll go to those meetings. If I have to write every morning, I'll do that. If I have to do the first three steps in the morning, the prayers, I'll do that. Call me at 5 in the morning, I'll do that. I did what she told me to do, and pretty soon I started to feel better. And pretty soon I started to lose weight. But then it didn't bounce back. It started to come off and stay off. And so the next thing was... The third step said we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the higher power. And I said, okay, I'll turn it over to my sponsor. And she immediately said to me, well, it says in the steps that, in the big book, that the third step is immediately followed by action. And the action step is the fourth step. Well, let me tell you, I had tried to write a fourth step several times before this. In fact, my first fourth step was going to be so great, I typed it. I mean, I wanted it to look good. You know, there was it. And all else fails, look good. So I typed that, and I got about four pages of that done, and that never got finished. All the way, by the way, I was always a great starter. I never finished anything. I don't want to bore you with my eight-year you know, eight Afghan. <laughs> uh, you know, I did have six stripes to finish. You know, so you made six stripes. I made five, and they were laid for eight years. Because that's how I, that's how I started when I went to UCLA. I'd go out and I'd buy the books, I'd buy the markers, I'd buy the, the notebooks, the highlighters, and uh, at two or three weeks into the course, the, the professor wanted a, a paper and a midterm and a, and a final and, and quizzes. I didn't want that. I dropped out. And so for the first year at UCLA, I, I uh, almost got expelled because needless to say, I thought I was not very smart. And so I, I went through most of my school cheating because I didn't think I was really a smart person. And my first test I took at UCLA, I cheated off the guy in front of me because I was too lazy to study, and he was dumber than I was. <laughs> so we both, we both got called in the dean's office, and I said, if we ever catch you doing this again, you're, you're out. So I got scared and said, no, I won't do that anymore, and learned how to study finally. 
So my motive before this program was do the least amount of work and get the most results. It doesn't work in this program or in life, I have found out. This program has taught me about how life works for me. And so I started to write my four step and was scared to death because there were things there that I was never going to admit to another human being. And a lot of it had to do with sex. And so I carried this thing around with me, you know, thinking that if I left it somewhere or somebody found it, they would write the great American novel. <laughs> also, you know, I heard one of my friends say, compulsive overeaters are have the inferiority complex with ego and are egotistical at the same time. So I was so ashamed about what I had written in my fourth step that I didn't even want to give it to my sponsor. I was afraid I would never be able to face her after I had admitted these horrible things. So I found someone in a poor, um, an alcoholic, and I made an appointment and went that afternoon and spent eight hours telling my story and admitting everything that I had done that I had felt guilty about, that I had felt shame about, that I had felt resentment about, that I had fear about. I was such a fearful person before I came to this program. It took me nine years to get my driver's license. I got my learner's permit at 16 and did not get my license until I was 25 because I was afraid I was going to kill somebody on the road. And so I'd get a, li- get a license, take a few driving lessons, and then let the, let the learner permit expire. So I finally got my, my license because the girl that used to drive me to work got pregnant. How dare she? And she stopped working, and I had to either take the bus or get a car. So I got my driver's license. So for me, my life was full of a lot of negativity, and I was following my mother's path of not having friends because I treated everybody like my mother started to treat treated everybody. And this program started to say that if I resent somebody, it's not about them, it's about me. And I had to start looking looking inside of me. And I took that fourth step and I felt such a relief from giving all of that stuff away. It was like carrying a 40-pound bag of potatoes around my back. All this game and this shame and guilt and fear and resentment. Um, I felt like a nickel with a hole in it. I felt I had, I had wasn't worth anything. And that fifth step gave me the feeling that I was okay, that I was like everybody else. Because this man shared all of his stuff. And I realized, he said to me, there hasn't been a human emotion invented in the last 3,000 years. That's right. Everything that I felt and felt shameful about or guilty about or resentment about or fearful about was what everybody else feels. Except I thought I was the only one. and I, I made a big deal about all of that. And it kept me from living my life. I was an isolator. Uh, I was just telling Roseanne for the meeting, I used to always complain about not being able to go any or not having a social life. And then when I'd make um, a date or uh, to meet somebody or go to a show, the day of the, th- of the event, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay home. Too comfortable. I might, might not dress right, I might not look right, I might not say the right thing. And so for me, learning about that everybody is just like I am was a miracle for me. And when I drove home from that fifth step, I felt like a million dollars. And he took me through the sixth step and asked me if I was ready to have my defects of character removed, and I said yes, but I lied. Because I wasn't really really willing to give them all up. I loved gossip, loved judgment, loved criticism. Because it made me feel better. 
when I would say something negative about you or judgment about you, it built me up, made me feel better than you were. And so <clears throat> gossip is one of the things that I wanted to hang on to in judging other people. And I get, and it's been, it's been a, a, um, I've been in progress with that. And it's gotten better over the years. It's not perfect. But I have to remember anything I'm trying to say about you that's negative, it's the same thing about me. I, that's, that's me I'm talking about. So after doing the sixth and seventh step, um, there was that old eighth and ninth step. And that scared me almost as much as the fourth and fifth step did. But I was willing to go to any length. And as well as being a compulsive overeater, I was a compulsive shoplifter. I stole almost every day of my life. I stole and ate. And, you know, Monday mornings used to be, today I'm going to go on a diet and stay on it, and today I'm not going to steal. Before maybe the day was out, the week was out, months was out, all of those vows were broken because I couldn't, I couldn't do it on willpower. And I didn't know why I stole, because I had money to buy the things I stole. But I didn't feel I was worth it. So I'd go into a store, and I needed, if I needed a blouse, and they had a blue one and a black one I liked, I bought one and stole one. And my rationale was <clears throat> that they made enough money on the first one to make up for the one that I stole. And so my first amends, and I had a lot of them, was to the Broadway department store that used to be on Wilshire Boulevard, which is now a big hole in the ground. And I always kid about this probably because they had a lot of customers like me. <laughs> no ego in my, in my head. Um, and I was scared because I didn't know anybody in 1964 who had made a financial amend. And I had heard stories about AA people who had done it. And my sponsor again reminded me that I was willing to go to any lengths. And so for me, um, I was a little dramatic. I told my husband, now listen, yeah, you may get a phone call. You may have to come you know, post bail. Because I didn't know if they arrested you. I didn't know if they threw you in jail. And so um, I wrote my check for what I thought I had stolen in, in, in amount and drove over the hill with my heart beating in my mouth because I was so scared. I had been told to make an appointment with the manager of the store, not to seal not to seal a salesperson. And uh, when I got there, she had been called away on an emergency. And right away I thought, oh, God is telling me I don't have to do this. And I thought, no, I'm here. I've got my hand in my check, my check in my hand. Maybe I had my hand in my check. Um, and I found somebody that was a, a manager of a department, and I said, I told her my little story. I'm, a, I'm in a self-improvement program. I stole it from the store. This is the amount of money I think you, I owe you. They don't want to take my check. I said, you have to take my check. I won't recover if you don't take my check. <laughs> so they took my check. They said at that point in 1964, they had, had not had anybody come in person to make a financial amendment. Excuse me. They had people who had sent checks anonymously. They had people who had left merchandise in the front of the store anonymously. But they hadn't had anybody come face to face. And they kind of led me around the store kind of showing me off, which was kind of <laughs> very weird, very weird. But on the way home again, I felt like something I had never felt before. I felt good. I felt good about myself. I had said I was going to do something, and I had done it. This program is the first thing in my entire whole life that I have done 100% to the best of my ability. Not perfectly, but to the best of my ability. Um, the 10th and 11th and 12th steps are always referred to as the maintenance steps. 
Um, I recently, I've been listening to, I guess, Joe and Charlie, and I like what they say. It's not my, it's not my uh, thing. They call it the growth steps. Because when you maintain, you kind of stand still. Well, that's okay for weight, but for spiritual and emotional growth, it isn't good. It is, I know it isn't good for me because I have a tendency to, to rest on my laurels. And so these last three steps have been really interesting for me. About 15 years ago, I, I felt like I was kind of in a rut in the program. Things were kind of stale. So I, I heard someone that was doing a workshop on the 12 steps, and I decided I would go and participate in that. And one of the things they, they had you do when you got to the 10th step was to look at page 86. What do you know? There's a page 86 in my big book. I never saw it before. <laughs> Up until that time, I read it, but I didn't connect with it. And so for, I don't know, maybe three or four years after that, every single night, I went through all the questions they ask you every single night in the t- uh, when you go to bed. And in the morning, I asked, I did the, the, this, the prayers and the meditation every morning. And it was amazing to me. Because then, after a couple of years, it really became clear to me that the, that the tenth step for me really boiled down to two steps. What did I do today that I felt good about? And what did I do today that I didn't feel so good about? And usually what I didn't feel so good about was a personal amend. I had opened my mouth. I had judged somebody. I had criticized my husband. I had been a nag, which happens sometimes. <laughs> and um, Or I had misspoken. Or I had... Um, give an advice when it wasn't asked for. Uh, and so things like that. And so I can take care of that the next day or the next couple of days or maybe the next week. Sometimes it takes me a while to get around to swallowing my ego and telling the truth. This is the other thing this program has taught me. It's taught me to tell my truth. And it was something I never knew how to do before because I didn't know what my truth was. I liked your truth. And your truth looked better than my truth, so I took your truth. So for me, the 10th step really became alive only about 15 years ago. And the 11th step is a step that I've been on for a very all the time that I've been in this program. It's been my spiritual journey. Uh, people ask me, you know, what, what, is my spir- what is my spiritual practice? What is my spiritual belief? And I've gone a lot of places and, and learned a lot of things. I've been, I've been in a lot of different spiritual practices. Um, I, was born, I was born Jewish. I did, I, did, I did find Judaism to, to fulfill the, the need in my heart. And so I've gone a lot of places and done a lot of things, and I've all just called myself a spiritual mutt. Because what I've done is I've taken what has, been, what has rung true for me, for myself, to be my truth and be my, my higher power. And so for me, I have taken, for, taken the meditation practice that I've found somewhere for myself and something else. I also want to talk a little bit about my absence from Overeaters Anonymous. In 1975, I was in a spiritual practice. And uh, at that time, I was um, doing a lot of speaking in OA. I had lost my weight. I was on the circuit. People were asking me to sponsor them. Um, and I thought I was Miss Hotshot. And my spiritual teacher says, you need to leave the program because you're, you're getting too egotistical. Now, I didn't see it that way. I thought I was just building a lot of self-esteem. And so um, I left the fellowship for nine years, from 1975 to, ni- to the end of 1984. And in that whole time, I abstained. 
Because what happened for me is I took what I had learned in those 12 steps and practiced them on a daily basis. I didn't have to go to a lot of meetings. When I first came into OA, there was one meeting in, in L.A. and one meeting in the San Fernando Valley. And six months after I came into the, the program, I moved to the valley. Now, moving to the valley for me was like moving to the end of the world. It was away from my mother. <laughs> and, um, and there was two meetings in the San Fernando Valley. Big deal. And so and when we didn't have meetings, we would go to any meetings. So I had never been a big meeting person. I didn't have five or six or eight meetings to choose from every week. And so I learned to work those steps and incorporate them in my life without a lot of meetings. So the time I was gone, I kept practicing what I had learned. And I really had no intention of coming back to this program, except God intervened. My daughter became critically ill in December of 1984. And at the time, we didn't know what was wrong with her. She started out and looked like the flu. And then um, she, her fever wouldn't go away, and she was very weak. And my doctor said, I think she's probably dehydrated. She needs to go into the hospital and get hydrated. And when they got into the hospital, she had no blood pressure. And they thought she had food poisoning, and then she thought they, they thought she had appendicitis. And they didn't know what it was. And my, my physician brought in another doctor. And by the grace of God, his receptionist had had toxic shock syndrome three weeks before. And that's what it was. And that, the first night when we didn't know what it was, I called three people from my home group and asked them to pray for my daughter and myself because we didn't know what was going on. She was slipping away. And two of those people came and sat with me that night. All night long. And the next week, I had calls from lots of people in that my old home group that I hadn't heard from in a long time, saying that they, they anything they could do for me, they were praying for me, would they go to the hospital for me, anything that I wanted. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to my home meeting just to, just to tell everybody how grateful I was. And when I walked through that meeting and those doors, I knew God had brought me back to Overeach Anonymous. And I knew that that's where I belonged. So I've been back in the program, or back in the fellowship. I never, never, ever left the program. I left the fellowship. And I missed it. I missed the fellowship. But it was time for me to learn. She said, Maxine, it's time for you to learn some humility. This isn't all about you. And I thought it was all about me. So I came back. When I left, I thought I knew everything. When I came back, I knew I knew nothing. Because I had enough uh, practice in spirituality and enough practice in my inner past to know that that wasn't what it was about. And I really just wanted to be one above many. That's what I really wanted. And so for these last, um, I don't know how many years it is now, 12 years or so, 22 years? I don't know. I lose track of time. Um, I came back and after my girls had, uh, I have two grown daughters and after they left home I was getting kind of bored and I'm not very good with unstructured time and just so happened that the San Fernando Valley Intergroup needed an office manager. And I said, oh, I think I could do that part-time, just for maybe a year or two. And that was in August of 1986. And I'm still there working. And I'm very grateful because every single day I get to talk to compulsive overeaters, just like me. And every single day I get to live this program. And I work as hard in this program today as I did before. So, you know, you've heard around these rooms that, you know, Working this program was like peeling the, the skin of an onion. And I used to think that was really trite. I thought that was, ugh, but it's, you know. But it's true. I couldn't get to the real deepest part of my problems until I started to peel away the ones that were more on top. 
And so that's what my, that's what my quest has been now. It's been peeling away those layers of onions. Um, I live a life now that I never thought I would be able to live before. I live in a normal body. One of my sponsors um, was talking to me the other day, and I was feeling, I was kind of in a bad place. I'm having a hard time. I'm redoing my kitchen. Don't even, I don't want to go there. <laughs> Except decision-making about colors and things is not my thing. And I was feeling really, really bad. And I said, I was mentioning to her that um, one of my sponsors is going to give me a candle for 43 years. And I said, I really didn't feel I deserved it. And so she said, I just want to tell you, Maxine, that every fat person in this world would like what you have, that you live in a normal body, and that you give a lot of hope to a lot of people. Now, that isn't because of me. That's because of God and these 12 steps. And when she said that to me, I could look at that and say, I'm not perfect. I still have trouble chasing colors. I'm still indecisive. I still have a little perfectionism. But I'm not the person I was when I walked through these doors. I have a wonderful, loving husband. We have a, have a nice marriage. We just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Anybody that can live with a compulsive overeater has got to be a saint. That's all I'm telling you. I have two grown daughters who I have a relationship with who love me and, and, and I love them. I have two grandchildren. Nobody fights in our family because we all speak our truth. We support and love each other. Um, and that's such a gift. Because I wasn't raised in that kind of home. I was raised where my mother did nothing but yell and, and criticize my dad and castrate him as, as a man and yell and scream. I didn't come from a place where there was harmony. I didn't come from a place where there was love. This program has taught me that. It's taught me how to be loving. It's taught me how to compromise. It's taught me how to look at myself and be responsible for who I am. It's also taught me how to take responsibility for my own errors. When I made a mistake, the first time I made a mistake in the OA office, I thought they were going to fire me. And I wanted to blame somebody else. It wasn't my fault. I take responsibility for my mistakes. This program... um, has given me a lot. And uh, when I did this workshop about 15 years ago, there was a lot of questions. And there was an optional question at the bottom. And it said, if you died today, what would you want on your tombstone? And if you, and, uh, if you died today, if you died today, what would be on your tombstone? And if you died today and you had a choice, what would you like to have on your tombstone? So I said, mm, it's an optional question. I don't like those kind of things. They make you have to think. And I don't like to think too much. So I thought, I'm going to, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Well, you know, it's like the elephant in the living room. You can't stop thinking about it. So I thought about it a lot, and what really came up for me is I thought if I died today, they would say Maxine, loving wife, mother, grandmother. But what I would really like to have on my gravestone is Maxine, she made a difference in another compulsive overeater's life. And that's what this program has given me. Thank you for letting me share. Does. What's the biggest change that you've seen over the years? 
I've seen more people working the steps, more people abstaining. And I think if they, you know, the old expression is it works if you work it. And I think there's more people dedicated to working the steps than I've ever seen before. Because that makes a difference. You can walk into a meeting where people are working this program or working the steps. That's a strong meeting. If you go into a meeting, whether it's what I call BM meetings, which is bitch and moan, <laughs> uh, you don't see a lot of recovery. So, there was, yes? You mentioned when you started that um, it's, the road's gotten narrower or it's gotten more difficult mm-hmm. to this program, and I'd like to know what you meant by that. Well, there's a couple things. Number one, I can't eat the amount of food I used to eat to maintain the weight that I have. My, I weigh between 125 and 128. Uh, I used to be able to eat a lot more things than I can now. The world gets narrower when it comes to food for me, and I think for maybe anybody else who's getting a little older. I see a lot of shaking heads. Um, I see that I have to be more honest with myself. And I'm willing to be that way. I wasn't so willing at the beginning. Because I thought if you still really knew who I was on the inside, you wouldn't like me. And I thought that if I spoke my truth, you wouldn't like that. And I've learned that when I speak truth to people, they get it. And I know that I, for myself, know when people are, are not truthful. Yes? What is your I have had more abstinence than most of you have had days in the program. Um, I started out with three meals a day and nothing in between. I used to eat a hamburger patty and an orange for 12 year, or 10 years every morning. I'm a, I'm a boring eater. If I like it, I eat it every day. And I have just recently read many articles that say that boring eaters have, have a tendency to keep their weight off. And I've learned that the more variety you have, in food, the, the um, research shows that the more you eat. So I eat the same breakfast every morning now. Would you like to hear the recipe? <laughs> because that's what people want to know. And it, it doesn't matter. I eat the same thing every single morning. I eat a half a cup of fiber bran, three quarters of a cup of yogurt, uh, two tablespoons of oat bran, a tablespoon of flaxseed meal, four ounces of blueberries. And that's it, every morning. I take it with me when I travel. Because I don't trust any place else, and so for me, and I and I was a bit, I was a vegan for 17 years, and so I ate no flesh, I ate no eggs, no cheese, and things like that, and I did that for 17 years, and then I realized that I really wanted to go back to eating chicken, fish, and that's what I eat now, and I eat three meals a day and two snacks. Anybody else? Yes. Um. Thank you. You were great. Um, uh, Thank you. What do you do if you get a craving? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you get craving. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you get a craving, what steps or what, what do you do in order to get through that? Time. Um, my analogy of, of the compulsive feeling and the craving is like the ocean. When you look out at the ocean, it looks very flat. I'm feeling I'm just zipping along, I'm not craving, I just everything is just hunky donkey. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, it raises this wave. Out of nowhere. I don't know what it is. 
Did I say something to my husband? Did someone say something that made me feel bad? Did I get angry? I don't know, but there it is. And oh my God, I can't stand it. I've got to have something. And I think I'm going to die if I don't have it that moment. But what I found out about the ocean is those waves go up and they crest and then they crash down and they come flat again. So I've always had plan A, B, and C. When I, was first, when I first started to abstain, it still holds true to me now. I have plan A. It used to be at night because I was always a night eater and I'd want to eat at night. So I'd say, well, I can have a cup of tea or I can go to bed. And for a long time, I had a lock on the inside of my door, in my bedroom. And I would go to bed, and my, my promise to myself is I would not get up until the morning. And the morning I got up, I wasn't hungry. wasn't that interesting. Then if it's during the day, if I can take a walk, I can make a phone call. Someone I know says there's three Ps, afraid, pitch, and, and, and phone. And so I can call another compulsive reader. If I can get to a meeting, I'll do that. Or I'll clean a closet. Or I'll, I'll do something I want to do. I'll start putting pictures on a picture album. And it goes away. It doesn't last forever. And that's what I have found out about cravings. Or I'll sit down and write. See, I feel like eating this because. What's going on with me? Not so, not so often as it used to. But <laughs> during this time, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, how are your daughters affected? Did they follow your healthy example, or were they overly conscious about food? Well, my daughters, really yeah, my daughters blame me for whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and they rightfully so. I wasn't a great mom. Um, we never. My girls grew up when I was a carbohydrate abstainer. My sponsor brought the first gray sheet to Overeaters Anonymous. She left two years after that and left me in charge of the sheet to protect me. <laughs> True. Honest to gosh, she left me in charge of the sheet for the copyright. Nobody could copy the sheet. If you wanted a sheet, you had to come to our meeting to buy a sheet. <laughs> so there was never any carbohydrates in my house, except on birthday parties, because I didn't keep it in the house. So my daughters who liked it, one of my daughters who liked to eat dessert, blames me for being craved dessert because we never had it in the house. Now, if I had it in the house and she got fat, that still would have been my problem. <laughs> so you can't win. So my, my daughters are thin. Uh, one of them has had, when she broke up with a boyfriend at one time, went to Weight Watchers because she put on some weight. But they're, they're slender girls. They haven't, uh, thank God, didn't, you know. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> My, one of my son-in-laws, you know, they have, they have a, a cabinet with junk food. When I go babysit there, it's like Disneyland. It's <laughs> <laughs> impossible for eaters. Um, you know, it's their life. I stay out of it. I don't ask questions. Uh, it's not my business. Now, there's only three businesses in the world. My business, your business, and God's business. And most of the time when I want to say something to somebody, it's the other two businesses. <laughs> so that's how, you know, kind of kept peace in the family. Yes, Jason. Uh, how do you deal with your desire to judge other people and compare yourself with other people? How do I... How, how do, do I deal with it? How do you work? It's been a long process. I now, for myself, know that whatever bothers me about you, I have some of. Mm-hmm. Whether I, you're, 
more successful. You you you're controlling. You don't you don't follow directions. Whatever it is, and I can say, God, that Jason, he doesn't do that. But then I have to say to myself, even to say, you know, that you point to somebody, there's three fingers pointing back. I never understood what that was mm-hmm. until a long, not so long ago. It means that what you have and it bothers me is something I have done or am still doing, but I don't recognize it. And the other reason I judge you is because I want to feel better than you do because I don't feel as good as you are. It makes me, when I judge somebody else, it puts you down and raises me up. I want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. And it took me a long time. Time? Thank you for letting me share.